On today's show, I am joined by Jackson Frank, who writes about the NBA across the board in the internet circles. And we talk about the Hawks, the East, young guys in the Hawks, all that fun stuff. All that is on the way. You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1546 of the Lawton Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, coming to you on a Thursday here in September. And today's podcast is brought to you by the folks at FanDuel Sportsbook, which is partner of the Lawton Podcast Network. If you're a new customer, get about $5 and get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed. Visit FanDuel.com slash LockedOn to get started today. And also at the top of the podcast, I should tell you to make us your first listen each and every day here at the Lawton Hawks podcast. Please subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcast, places like Apple and Spotify, YouTube, etc. And I am joined on today's podcast by Jackson Frank, who writes about the NBA at Uproxx and SB Nation and other places across the internet. He's been, he's been on the show before. Great guest, good friend of mine, talking about the NBA world. And it's actually part one of two with Jackson. The main show is one you're about to listen to right now. We still have a, a little bit of a shorter bonus episode attached to it with some stuff about the Eastern Conference and where the Hawks stack up in that conference. But beyond that, some just general Hawk stuff. And also, you know, young guys. He wrote AJ Griffin recently, so that's definitely on the podcast as well. And just a good sort of late summer, early fall catch-up because training camp is coming soon, and we're building up to all of that stuff in the coming days. So without any further delay, myself and Jackson diving into the Hawks right now. I am joined now by friend of the podcast, Jackson Frank. Thank you for coming on in the podcast, my friend. How are you? Doing well. Happy to, uh, happy to talk some Hawks and uh, Eastern Conference Outlook. I appreciate you doing it. Uh, is as we talked about before we start recording. It's uh, I think there's the dead zone, and then there's like I guess we're not in the dead zone anymore because it's September. But it feels like we've all kind of talked about everything at this point in time. But <laughs> I, I do appreciate you coming on, and uh, I I try to avoid like deep Hawks conversations. People, people that don't cover the team every day. Um, but I, I think that you have, number one, you've written about the Hawks recently, which we'll talk about your AJ Griffin thing that I wanted to talk about. But um, I also know that you watch everything and uh, i appreciate you uh, being willing to jump on um before we like get into some of the, the depth stuff potentially i want to just ask you this especially because you cover the whole league what what do you kind of make of the hawks the last couple years and especially last year struggling basically like i know it's kind of it wasn't like a disaster but they ended up in the play-in after you know not kind of going not all in but they pushed a lot of chips in and um, what did you make of last year's Hawks team and like the fact that, you know, as we look ahead in a second, they didn't do a ton to overhaul the roster. So it's pretty relevant how they played last year. Yeah, I think I think I totally got the idea of trying to get another very, very good ball handler after watching that heat series. It was clear they needed that. But then because of the trade of Herder and losing some other shooting, they kind of opened up other holes that made it really tough for DeJounte and Trey to do a lot of what they like as ball handlers, especially DeJounte likes to get to the mid range and operate there. And, you know, if there's shooters open, he's a pretty solid kickout passer, but when there's not guys open, he's kind of going to prefer to take some of those contested area jumpers that maybe aren't always the best shot, but he doesn't always have a better option. So uh, that was a tough thing, but uh, yeah, the last couple of years, they've kind of been the classic start slow and pretty well. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think if you compare the quality of play they had, um, by, you know, let's say games three through six of that Celtics series versus 
October, November, December, uh, completely different teams. Obviously, Quinn Snyder, you know, replaced Nick McMillan, changed, changed some things, but I don't think that was the only shift at all. But um, so, yeah, I'm I'm fairly optimistic about the Hawks this year, but I feel like I've said that I said that at least two years ago. I wasn't <laughs> as huge a fan last year. Um, but yeah, it's just tough because they kind of seem like they've been a slow starting team, but that could be. It could be, you know, maybe they just, maybe that's kind of the way McMillan's style was. I don't, I don't know exactly, but um, you'd hope they can maybe start quicker this year and not be, you know, face an uphill battle in the first round. And, you know, two years in a row playing a team in the first round that ends up making it to the, the brink of the finals. Um, you know, the Heat two years ago in the Celtics last season. So, uh, yeah, you know, like you said, I, they kind of went all in, but you know, they do have some options now, and I got why they went in, you know, make a big swing, but. Um, some of the gaps that as a result of that big swing put them in kind of a lateral spot from the year prior. Yeah, it's interesting. I probably am due for like a deep dive into this, but uh, that you brought it up, the fact that they've started slow and finished strong, even even the, the now infamous 2021 year when they made the conference finals, they got hot before that. Like there's been, I think people locally know this, but people nationally kind of like, oh, they got hot in the playoffs. Like, no, they had been hot since like, January of that year like they played at a super high level going into the playoffs um and yeah they have never been able to recapture that or at least have it consistency I know my friend Glenn Willis and I talked about this all the time like the thing that, they, that they've never had is consistency like in this entire run they've, been, they've never been able to put it together for a long period of time and um you know everyone has their opinions as to why that might be and uh you re- you reference Quinn Snyder I, I guess I'll ask you this too just I guess it was on my list anyway I mean they're kind of banking on him to be like the big addition I mean they 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 did some other stuff, you know, the Sadiq Bay move, which is certainly interesting and probably gets under discussed because it happened at the deadline versus the offseason. But Snyder's still like number one A on their change list in terms of having a full camp and all that stuff. I know you covered him in Utah like everybody else did too, but what did you make of that? And then moving early and also the fact that he got that kind of I don't even know what to say, appetizer on this team. It's it was so weird. I feel like I keep saying that over and over again, but it was I want to stress like how odd that whole situation was and him having a different staff that wasn't his and now they've overhauled it all. But um, how much stock do you put in that coaching change? Because that is probably the thing that they're trying to sell everybody else on. Like, Hey, it's kind of the same team, but we're, we have a different voice. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you look at the, uh, you know, the offense is really good. Once Snyder took over, I know they were still kind of hovering around 500. They have a, obviously the, the uh, hilarious, you know, not one game over above three <laughs> for a while. Yeah. Um, but the offense is really good. They, they played quicker. Um, I was, for some reason, I can't find the number. I'm spacing on the numbers, but now they're like top five in offensive rating and yeah. much quicker pace than they were under McMillan, or at least transition frequency. Pace is a tough one because sometimes it you know involves kind of how you good you are on defense, and so that impacts things. But um, and then in the playoffs, you know, they, their offense was gave Boston, which is a was a very good defense, it was a flawed defense, but gave Boston a lot of issues, more issues than the Sixers' deep offense did. And the Sixers were, yeah. you know, a top three or four offense the you know the entire year once James Harden came back in December. So I guess not the entire year, but about a four and a half month stretch there. Um, and so I think that's that's really what you're looking for, right? You're looking for the offense to be a top three, four unit, which you know with the personnel they have with Trey leading the way. Um, that's what you need. And you want them to be, you know, above average defensively. The point of attack off defense is kind of the, the big issue, but you would hope that if you can get 48 minutes of Capella and Okongwu in there, your defense is probably going to be okay, right? Like, I mean, those are two very good high-level defenders. Um, you know, with Capella, you're more of a traditional drop. Okongwu gives you a little more switchability, a um, little less rebounding, of course, because of his size and his foul issues as well. But, uh, yeah, I think you're, the, the path to being like a, a team that avoids the play-in uh, is to be you know a top five offense and a top 
15, 16 defense, which is a little tough given given the way the point of attack defense looked last year. I know, you know, everyone's aware of Trey's issues there, but and we've talked about it, Brad, but Jonte wasn't very good on that end last year either. Um, and so it just puts a lot of stress at Capella and Okongu, who again I think are very good defenders, but they're not in the go bear um Jaron, you know, kind of that defensive player of the year tier where you can kind of prop up it prop up a defense to top 10-ish levels, even if the personnel around you is really limited. So, um, you know, you're, you're hoping can, can Bogey look a little more like he did a couple years ago when he was pretty useful as a, as a point of attack guy? Can can DeAndre look a lot better than he did? Um, just the lateral quickness, I thought, was much worse last year than it was maybe even the year prior once he found his footing and then two years before that. So, um, yeah, I, I'm optimistic about the Hawks overall this year, but I do understand it kind of requires them to – find that consistency that you, you mentioned has eluded them, right? Like you've seen good stretches of Bogey and, and DeAndre defensively, but you've never really kind of had it coalesced with Okongwu and Capella being healthy and all that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like any team. Consistency is key to, to accrue a lot of wins in the regular season. But uh, I do see a pathway to where it happens, but I also see quite a few, you know, ways where an injury or two hits and this team is eighth in offense and 22nd in defense in their you know, playing at a 42 win pace like we saw most of last year. Today's show is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook. Get ready for the NFL season right now with incredible offers from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook right now. If, by the way, if you're a new customer, bet $5, you get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed with FanDuel. Plus, every customer who bets $5 can also get $100 off Sunday ticket from NFL, YouTube, and YouTube TV. Beyond the awesome perks of signing up right now, FanDuel has point spreads and over-unders, money lines, player props, futures, and much more. The app at FanDuel is also very safe and secure. They cover the whole range of sports you might be interested in at this point. That includes, of course, the NFL, college football, NBA, MLB, WNBA, college basketball, golf, tennis, soccer, auto racing, and much more. And now is the best possible time to join FanDuel. Visit FanDuel.com slash locked on. Kick off the NFL season with us and an offer that you do not want to miss right now. That is FanDuel.com slash locked on. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. This is not a question that you will have stewed on as much as I have or Hawks fans would have, but I'm interested in what you think because I know you've talked about a Kongu a lot. Um, there's this whole debate about them bringing both guys back still Capella and Kongu still being here. And I'm, I'm kind of, I've said before, I'm pretty surprised that Capella is still on the roster. Not, and I, and I, I love, I think he's very good. It's just that if you asked me three years ago when they drafted the Kongu, if they both still be on the roster in year four, I would have fallen onto my chair if you said yes. And they're and still especially here. how Okongu's looked, right? Like if you would right. say that Okongu is a very good NBA player. Right. Yeah. He's already kind of not that. I mean, I have gone back and forth, like how to frame it because he's not proven as a starter. He's not ever, he's never been asked to do that, but I think we, we kind of know he's, he's good. We, we don't know quite how good maybe, but he's not cause he hasn't been asked to do that for 30 minutes a night, but we kind of know he's a good player. And what do you make of that? Like even philosophically, like the, the concept of basically the way that they sell it and the way that I agree, I, I sort of agree is like, we want to have, and we do have 48 minutes of good center play. And I think that's, there's some value in that, but like, what do you make of that whole thing as someone from the outside? Yeah. I, I, I would, at this point in Congress career, I would lean toward it being smart to move Capella, but I also do get the fact that Capella has always been a guy who's a little, he's optimized when he's a little lower minutes, right? Like a guy in that 27, 29 minute range, you try and get up to 33, 34. Um, you really kind of start to see some, some play fall off. He's a much better rebounder than Okongu. I mean, his rebounding was a huge reason they beat the heat in that playing game um, back in the spring. I mean, the whole offensive rebounding was huge, but him especially was awesome there. Uh, and the fact that he, he fouls less and he gives you a different look defensively, uh, you know, 
like I said, Okongwu can play drop. He's good at that, but he's also his appeal is that switchability. And the Hawks roster isn't super conducive to right, that, right? You don't want Trey guarding up. You don't even really want DeJounte guarding up. I'm not sure you want Bogey or Hunter as the way they look after guarding down a ton. Uh, so it's a tough spot. Like I said, I lean toward moving Capel at this point, but I do understand completely why they've not gone that way. Just because I, like you said, like it's if you're going to make a big move to acquire like DeJounte Murray and trade off some, some future first round picks you're kind of shifting to say we're going to be in win now mode. And it's hard to balance that with, all right, we're going to give a Congo's first crack at, you know, full-time starting center minutes while trying to maximize an all-star and Trey young and a, you know, very good player in DeJounte Murray. It's kind of the, the core of our team. So uh, it's a precarious position, but it's also one, and I know it's a different front office to an extent now, but it's also yeah. one that they probably should have been better prepared to navigate <laughs> because like, because everyone, Basically, I mean, everyone knew that Okongwu maybe didn't have the highest ceiling in the draft, but pretty much expected him to be a pretty good player pretty quickly. And that, again, that's not to diminish, diminish Clint or, you know, his his exploits, but it doesn't feel like they necessarily kind of had a, a long-term vision. Maybe they do. Maybe they trade him pretty quickly around the season because Okongwu looks great, but uh, it does feel like Okongwu being so good basically from the outset kind of surprised them. And they haven't really had a, a pathway to shore up other holes that, you know, that come with, you know, draft using the last high draft pick they've had you know, on a center who's behind another pretty good quality center. Yeah. It's, it's so odd, you know, having covered it every single day, like there were times where it would have made sense to move Clint there. But if you kind of big picture it, like you said, like it's understandable that they haven't done it because in the way that, you know, there's an argument about how much Trey has to do with it because Trey pretty famously loves Clint and will tell anybody that. And the organization knows that. And uh, I, I don't know how much that has to do with it, but I'm, I would, I would put it on the list somewhere. It probably has uh, more than 1% uh, of the, uh, of the pie of, as to why Clint's still here. And also um, you can debate how, how all in they are, but um, one of the things and one of the reasons why you, you kind of alluded to it is that, this is a team that's been very clearly trying to win the entire time and like kind of pushing their you know, foot down to the, not all the way to the floor maybe, but like they're trying to win and they have pressure from the top to win. So that kind of incentive, you know, when you're kind of, especially with, with Nate, who was a very short-term focused guy, you know, moving Clinton would have made you worse and it, it still would make you worse now. I mean, that's the thing, like as much as I love a Kongwu, if you just trade a Capella for very little return in the short term, you're not going to be as good. Like Akongu might be good, but like your Bruno Fernando, who I kind of like actually is not the same as those guys. Like you're going to have a drop off there. So it's really philosophical. And um, I, I wonder now as you know, kind of circling back to Quinn, like do they just want to see what it looks like with a more, you know, Quinn coached Rudy. So I'm not saying that Clint is Rudy, but he's much more like Rudy than Akongu is. And I don't, I don't, I don't know. And Snyder has this voice in the front office, but he's not, he, he's very clear, quick to say he's not in charge. How much emphasis does he have? It's like this very interesting push and pull for a team that didn't quote unquote do a lot in the offseason. They have these decisions that they have to make in the next year, whether it's financial, whether it's center, you know, they just paid DeJounte, which made sense given the number that he took. But like, uh, it's fascinating. I'm sure it is on the, on, on your side too, but it's even, if you want to get really into the weeds, like day to day, it gets pretty, uh, it's pretty twisty in some respect, in some respects. Yeah. And I think it, it makes a lot of sense why Trey likes Capella, right? He's a really good screener. Yeah. He's a much bigger lob threat. Like Okongu is a much more diverse role threat, right? Cause he has better touch. He has a little more footwork, but he's much smaller. He's undersized center. Like it's harder to find those lobs. Like Trey already has, you know, has his own like things to navigate when he gets inside the paint at the rim because he's so small. <laughs> so if he has the kind of the, the, just the automatic lob dude guy who's got, you know, good catch radius, bigger, it's, it's an easier life for him than if he's, you know, 
playing with a six eight six nine center who again is very good, but that's just the natural limitations of a guy who's a little undersized, and that was one of the reasons that that maybe he did fall a little bit in the draft. He didn't fall too far, but like you know, if he was maybe six eleven seven foot more of a natural size center, he could have gone maybe top three, top four. Might have been a little more in that conversation. So I totally get the appeal of that, and the reality too is like, is there's a lot of really good centers, and like obviously like you get to the top with Yogi and Embiid, but like you get down to like the 10th, 11th, 12th guys and you're like, yeah, that guy might be a top 50 ish player still top 55. I know that's kind of where you should be if you're a top 10 center in a, you know, five position but, league, yeah. but, but still just the point being like, there, I, I understand why there's maybe not a robust market for Capella. And you look like, you look, okay. The team that made sense was the, the Mavericks, but then they went and you know, they signed Derek Lively the third or they drafted Derek Lively the third and traded for Sean Holmes. We don't know kind of what those guys are. One's a rookie. One hasn't really been in the rotation for about a year and a half, but uh, that kind of felt like the most natural suitor. And then you look around, you're like, I don't know what else is really out there. And does it make sense? For, like, does it shore up enough other holes that might, that you might leave open if you try and trust Congo for 34, 35 minutes tonight, given where he struggles and kind of where he excels. And they talked to Dallas and it made sense. And the thing is like, it's like the Hawks have not been willing to listen on Capella. Like he's been, he's been available in trade. It's not like they're saying, you know, Trey, Trey loves, and we're not going to trade him. They talked about Capella to multiple teams. I can, you know, that got reported and I can confirm that like he's been available. It's just that they're asking as they have been. And that's one of the things about this Hawks team. They've asked for market price on all of their guys and every, every year they, they, they've, they've never been, I guess the Collins trade was the first time where they thought they were, maybe more in a desperation mode on like, we're, we're going to move this guy now kind of thing. They've been very open to, and I think generally speaking, it's a good idea to be kind of measured like, okay, these guys are available, but we're not going to give them any, any of them away. And I think the Herder deal, I, I, I did not like, um, but it was financially motivated. And um, they basically had their, their choice of deals, I think is what I would put from what I've heard uh, that would have gotten them under the tax, as much as they hate that concept. It's that's what happened. Uh, and, but they got the first round pick for him and like, you know, it's not a sexy pick, but it's, it was, a, it was a real asset back. I didn't love the trade, but it is what it is. But other than the Collins trade, they haven't like lowered their asking price on any of these guys. And that's, I get it, but it's, that also leads you to being kind of more, uh, I almost said stagnant. Um, what's, what's, what's a more positive word than stagnant? Like kind of just holding, holding serve on your guys. Like you, <laughs> you're not going to, I mean, I, I talked about this actually earlier this week on, on my mailbag show, but I would have expected from the outside, I know our mutual friend Andrew Kelly talks about this a lot. Like the infamous consolidation trade has never happened. It's been three years. I would have bet that on, on them doing more than one probably between now and then. And they've still never, they've never made a consolidation trade in this entire era. And of course, part of that's because they moved Herder in a one player trade and they moved Collins in a one player trade, but they've never done like the put them all together and go get a guy. Uh, even DeJounte ended up, ended up being a draft, a draft pick focused trade. Um, so it's just a really interesting like roster building scenario. And I mean, we can get into that or not, but it's just, uh, uh, I wonder actually while we're here, I wonder what you think of the Hawks organizationally. I know that's not like necessarily your beat, but like, as far as like what you can on the outside, like you're not, you're not covering every day. Like, does it seem dysfunctional? Because, you know, when I ask people around the league, like to kind of just track it, some of it's what we talked about in a minute ago. Like it doesn't always kind of make sense in a vacuum what they're trying to do because they're they're obviously trying to push in and they keep going to the play in back to back years. So like I promise we'll, we'll, we'll go back to players in a second. But like, what do you just think about it like as a neutral observer from far away? They seem like they have a a preference. I won't say a plan. A preference for what they would like to do and what they like to have the team look like, but haven't really ever found a means of achieving that. And so it's led to a lot of discombobulated decisions that maybe don't always complement one another. Uh, 
So maybe I think probably dysfunction is a is a fair term. I think there are obviously degrees of dysfunction, right? Like it doesn't sure. necessarily mean they're you know at the at the bottom tier of, of the NBA yeah. franchises, but certainly a team that I don't think has been streamlined as much as it should. And but but I think like I think back to that, you know, how they built around Trey two years ago, you know, in the summer of 20 i guess i mean the off season of 20 there was it was a month and a half or whatever you know the year before they, they really kind of made that leap going from out of the bubble to to the Asia conference finals and it felt like the the plan was let's put a bunch of shooters around trey let's give him a lob threat let's give him a, a pick and pop threat uh and then just because of some of the things outside of their control you know with bogey's injuries hunter and in out of the lineup collins and you know kind of falling off as a shooter and, and, and ended up not really being someone that teams ever respected from deep, even when he was putting up good numbers. Uh, it kind of threw a wrench in their plans. They'd never quite been able to go about kind of balancing that again. And like, like I talked about earlier, it made sense, you know, with the way the heat loaded up so much help in the paint and, you know, at the nail against Trey two years ago, going and getting DeJounte makes sense, but they're still kind of reeling from, you know, the decisions around that, like the herder trade and, and Gallo not being anywhere close. I know Gallo was in the DeJounte trade, but not being anywhere close to as good as he was, you know, in 21. Uh, Collins falling off, Herter being gone. Um, so that, that's kind of where I see it. So, yeah, I guess, like, dysfunction is fair, but I, I wouldn't, you know, put him at the bottom of the league necessarily. But that's just from an outside perspective. doesn't necessarily know the, the ins the ends and the, the internal uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. relationships and decision-making process. I am going to get to the young guys in a second because that was uh, I told you I was going to, but um, that reminded me we're in the middle of this of this FIBA run where Bogey's been great and he's been in, in the news more often. And I've always made this point to the point where my listeners make fun of me. Like the Hawks have always in this run the last three or four years been their best when Bogey is healthy and Bogey is playing well. Like he is an X factor for them. Wh- whatever that means, he's not as important as Trey. No one's saying that, but like he's a really important guy for what they do and part of it was what you just laid out like having enough shooting around Trey number one but also having a guy who's been a secondary creator for them who can go get his own shot in a way that a lot of guys on this roster Hunter Collins etc have not always been able to do he's, he's a pretty good passer too defensively he's taking a step back but certainly that's what you expect from age wise but uh, I wonder what you think of Bogey because you know he, he signed that four-year extension that was kind of a surprise when it happened but it's fairly cheap and he looks great physically right now in a way that he hasn't in a long time so you know knock on wood beyond that but like what do you think of bogey because i feel like he gets not talked about very much just for the kind of the caliber of player that he is yeah he gives the hawks a, a front court size player i know he's a wing but a front court size guy uh that can create that they don't they've never really had besides like right like when gala was with was with atlanta he was more of a mismatch guy in the post which is useful you need that sort of guy i know that's kind of what they always hope collins could do more of but never really kind of streamline that consistency um but he's, he's kind of their only franco guy who can dribble right like i mean a guy yeah. who can run some pick and rolls you know whether it's up top usually from the wing or just kind of create from the wing get into that mid-range jumper that he likes uh obviously as a step back jumper from three as well uh, and yeah, he's, he's kind of the metronome, I think, for kind of where the Hawks are as a ceiling, you know, ceiling team, right. Or what the team, what the ceiling of the team is, I should say. Uh, and, you know, her, they kind of tried to make, you know, he saw some flashes of creation throughout his time, but it never quite got to the, the point it needed. I think he's just never quite kind of developed that core strength to operate in the mid range the same way that the bogey is when he's at his best. So yeah, he, he's really important. And, uh, it's it's been great to kind of see him healthy and playing well in, in FIBA. You, you know, I think it's a it's a nice sign that he, he's comfortable with where he's at. You know, physically that he's he's willing to play in in late in the late summer before your training camp starts up in a month or so. Uh, so yeah, I think if he's a guy who can really kind of help diversify that offense, if they can 
they can play, you know, Trey DeJounte Bogeyland for 12 minutes a game and really have a ton of offensive firepower out there alongside, you know, uh, maybe Sadiq's at the four and, and, you know, Capella's at the five, and you've got a lot of shooting, a lot of ball handling there. And uh, so, yeah, he feels like a guy who's just really important to kind of what they do because he's, he's you know, I, I could be missing a guy, I guess, maybe like, you know, among their playoff ro- rotation from last year, he kind of felt the only guy who drew really hard closeouts as an off-ball player, right? Like AJ yeah. Griffin does, but he wasn't in the in the playoff rotation. Right. Sadiq Bay does, I guess, to an extent, but you can kind of be a little more tepid because Sadiq, you know, he's been he was better at it in Atlanta, but he is kind of a guy who sometimes passes up open threes that you would like him to take and whatnot. I know that again, that was a lesser problem, you know, in, in Atlanta than it was Detroit. But yeah, Bogey is kind of the, the guy who draws the hardest closeouts among off-ball players who can you know, station comfortably alongside Trey and, and DeJounte, depending on kind of who's out there leading, leading the charge. For sure. And, you know, th- these lineups are not going to be uh, – one of the questions this team has that I won't bore you with is, like, can they deploy two-way lineups? Because if you, you, you could you could put together an offensive lineup that is terrifying with Bogey and Bay on the wings um, alongside Trey, DeJounte, and a role man. Like, that's that's fairly unstoppable, given the shooting that those guys have and Bogey's a dynamic threat and all that stuff. It's just that can you guard with those guys? And that's – of course, a big question that will uh, probably not be answered, at least in a positive sense, um, between now and then. But I mean, one more thing on Bogey, um, you know, Bay's not a great, not great here either. One of the questions is we sort of I want to transition this to to young guys in a second, but like one of the as good as they've been on offense under Trey, which has basically always been the case. Trey is an offense that's good on his own, but um, a limitation that they've always had that will hopefully become less of one as guys like Jalen Johnson in particular maybe AJ as well. They have not had the guys, the dribble pass and shoot guy, which is kind of funny because that was the Travis like mantra when he first took over was dribble pass and shoot. It became this like meme. He just said it a hundred times all the time. And then they had these guys where, you know, DeAndre Hunter, not uh, certainly not, not, not a pass guy, uh, not, not really a dribble guy or a pass guy. Uh, John Collins got better at it, but you know, a tradition, a, a much more traditional big, um, improved there, but not not a dynamic passer by any means, not, or, nor creator. Um, even Sadiq Bay, like not a not a great dribble pass guy necessarily. Uh, Bogey is, but you know that's why you, you start getting into guys like Jalen and uh, to a lesser extent AJ. And I feel like those guys hope the theory. Going back to what we talked about earlier, like the theory of the case, kind of includes one of them or two of them, maybe in, uh, between those guys in the Congo, kind of breaking out. And um, I'm gonna tee it up this way. I got some people. I don't know if they were mad at me or not. But I said on a recent show that uh, basically this doesn't even seem controversial as I say it out loud. But the way I framed it was, you know, this team could be really good with Trey and Ajante as their top two players. I believe that there's a way to do that. You know what I mean? Like like, like, like a clear top two. But they don't really have a path to being a title contender with Trey and Ajante as their clearly top two players. That's kind of the way that I laid it out. And I basically said that was a way of saying that that number one. And also, I'm not putting too much pressure on AJ or Jalen or a Kongwu, but like they kind of need one of those guys or two of those guys to like really become like difference makers. Does that make sense? And um, again, and then we'll sort of dig into those guys, but like they're kind of on the roster, barring a huge trade. I mean, internally, like those three candidates, maybe Cody Bufkin, if you just love him are kind of their way to turn the dial a little bit. seems like. Yeah. I think, you know, when I wrote about AJ a couple months ago, I think at this point, one of the things that I said made a lot of sense for him is just how, well, he kind of fits into that mold offensively alongside uh, alongside Trey. Like kind of not not the bogey mold to an extent. I think bogey you know is a much better passer and kind of 
more comfortable as a, as a, I know like AJ can do some stuff with his handle, but kind of facing the defense is where I think sometimes young guys kind of struggle in terms of like sizing them up and whatnot. And bogey's good there, but just with the blend of shooting, the touch from mid range, the close at attacking, how well he reads those things, that's really what you need. And I think, you know, with Trey specifically, you know, what I think like, if if the shooting is as good as it's been in certain years, like you can see a path where maybe he is the best player on a really, really good team. If it's where it was last year, it really kind of struggles, but what he needs to like kind of be the the perfect compliment, I think is maybe less so like a, a second, a really good secondary career like DeJounte and more like that second best player should be a high level defensive anchor. Right. And if you can, if, if a Congo get there, maybe, you know, like I said, I'm a little lower on that. Just given, you know, it's really hard at that size to be a true, true anchor. Um, just because of the rebounding and everything like that. And kind of just sometimes like, and there is just kind of an in, in, intimidation factor, right. For bigger guys, you know, players can be more willing to attack a six, eight, six, nine, seven, than they are a seven foot center for the most part. Um, you know, it's just the way, you know, human nature is. <laughs> um, but if you can get a Congo to a level where he is someone who is a really, really good, you know, not an elite anchor, but a very good anchor. Then you have AJ, you can average, 15 16 17 and trace doing his thing like then there's the core there that's kind of the, the process and the the formula there so uh with aj i kind of, i do understand that you know at times maybe like he was prone to uh you know dribbling too much and trying to do a little too much and you know i think i like just based on kind of the way the style that, that quinn gravitated toward in utah he wants those ancillary guys to be really quick decision makers, really quick kind of play finishers. And, and AJ, like I understand what he was doing, but it didn't necessarily always make sense for what, what Quinn kind of kind of gravitated toward with role players there. And I'll in just like he's, you know, Snyder's tracker is not particularly glamorous for, you know, giving a lot of leeway to young guys, um, yeah. which is not rare among any, you know, no. any veteran <laughs> NBA coach. It's just, the, it's just, the, it's just the way it goes, you know, for better or for worse. Um, so, yeah, I think AJ is the big key for me. They're just kind of based on how I feel about him versus Kongu. With Jalen, I like a lot of what he does, but it is just – it's tough for me to – as much as I kind of like these guys' skill sets, it's tough for me to really kind of buy into the non-shooting, non-center guys. Like, I think – I guess I would say non-shooting, but poor shooting. Like, Jalen is, is somewhat willing. You can tell there's times where he's more comfortable than others. Um, I get the connective passing. I get the cutting, the play finishing, the weak set room protection – um, but it's just tough to survive as a, as a four who doesn't, you know, provide, um, you know, a ton in the way of space. And if you're playing alongside of a Congo or a Capella, uh, you know, you look at, a, you know, I think Jalen's a much better, will end up being a much better finish than this, but you look at a guy like Jared Vanderbilt, who was really important to what the Lakers did in the regular season to close out last year. And then I think kind of the first round and part of the second round, the playoffs, but by the time they played the Nuggets in the second half of that Warrior series, he wasn't much of a factor because of his lack of shooting. Again, Jalen's a much better finisher. That could prove to be a differentiator. But I think you see some parallels in the archetype as kind of these rangy athletic wings who are quite good defensively, have some ball skills, but don't have the shooting. Um, so I'm a little lower on Jalen. If, if he ends up, you know, being a guy who can hit down, hit some threes, really draw closeouts and open up the driving game, the connective passing, then I then I would, you know, be more optimistic about it long term. But it's just tough to have, you know, your four and your five not be much of threats from outside, as we saw with the Cavs, you know, last year yeah. in the first round. So uh, to me, AJ is a guy just based on kind of the tape I've seen among the three young young, young players you mentioned, but. Uh, you know, I'm not, you know, at all married to those, you know, staunchly. I could definitely see ways <laughs> where I, I become, uh, you know, I shift one way or the other in terms of favoring some one of the other young guys. Yeah. And on, and on Jalen, like they, I agree with 
what you laid out. It's just they, they the internal and look, I mean, every, this is the case with every young player, but there are, there are certainly Jalen Zealots who will tell you he's going to be the next Ben Simmons. I, uh, ben Simmons with a jump shot was thrown around uh, at one point. <laughs> uh, but no, it's, it's one of those things where like the, the package of skills that he has is really intriguing. They all acknowledge that to your point, like him and the coaching staff in the front, they, think he will be able to shoot the question is whether he'll be able to and he shot 29 percent like he's not a total non-shooter which you i know you said they think there's more there that's going to be important for him and also just just a half court role in offense i mean that's that's something that's like the next step for a lot of guys that are his archetype but you know if you see a, a, a lot of the uh the clips that make the rounds that get people all excited about jalen johnson and justifiably so are him going end to end and like he's a 610 freight train he's he can handle the ball it's it's very very impressive and then you watch him in the half court and like there isn't a whole lot that they were able to do with him, even when Quinn took over. Um, so that's that's the next evolution, like baby steps for me is like, you know, what is his role even in a half court set, especially like you laid out next to a, I mean, a Kongwu is not a non total non shooter potentially, but so far he kind of has been and Capella obviously is a non shooter. So having two of those guys, having him with a non shooter at center would be tough. And I think there's a lot of belief in a Kongwu as a shooter. And they've, I think, intentionally, for myriad reasons, rebounding is one where Jalen's really good, kind of paired Jalen and Okongwu together a lot and had Jalen and Capella play less together, which makes a lot of sense if you think about it. But there is a, they're high on him for sure. And I think Quinn, um, people ask, even asking this, like Quinn seemed to favor Jalen versus AJ at the end of last season. And I think that was kind of normal. I mean, Jalen was kind of a rookie in some ways. He hadn't played a lot as a rookie, but it was, I think, the, I think he just trusted his defense more at the end of the day. It was a lot mm-hmm. of the reason why that happened too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you mentioned Okong not being a non-shooter. You saw like strides and kind of the way he was used and the comfort he and the yeah. freedom he has this year. Like I think did he hit his first career three pretty shortly into it was like uh, the first or second game. Like it, and it was yeah. a, it, and, they, and they made a big deal of it too. Like I mean, they want him to shoot. They they do want him yeah. to shoot. We'll yeah. see if he's actually able to do that regularly, but mm-hmm. like they do want to encourage it at least. Which yeah, but yeah, my point there is that like you you open up more possibilities because yeah. Okongu is much less entrenched in who he is than than Capella. Like, again, Capella great a lot of things, but he's also a veteran who you know is just never going to be a shooter. So, but like you can run a lot more actions if Okongu is at least comfortable taking those pick and pop threes, things like that, and Jalen can roll. Uh, obviously, Jalen has good size, pretty good bounce, good good length. So he's he's a more of a lob threat. Like he's 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 taller than Okongu, right? Like I know he's not a center, but like you, you've got more you've got more options with the lob threat, like we talked about earlier with Trey kind of being someone who really enjoys that as an outlet when he's probing the paint or driving inside. So uh, yeah, like again, I I like AJ a lot, uh, and but I I totally understood why Quinn gravitated toward Jalen as a rotation player last season, just because like I said, you know AJ is prone to kind of some of those longer touches. Jalen has his own issues at times there, but he is a pretty very quick decision maker, especially in advanced situations. Doesn't always work out because you know, sometimes he takes a three and he's just not a particularly good shooter yet. But <laughs> yeah. sometimes he, you know, is able to pump take a three, open up a driving lane, and then you know get you know do a cross court skip to somebody who is a good shooter. So uh, yeah, I, I I definitely kind of see a world where like Okongwu or Jalen ends up being a a somewhat of a shooting threat again. Like it's. There are levels to it in the playoffs. You know, yes. teams are much more aware because they're scouting you and they're getting to watch you. They're they're only watching your tape. Um, so uh, I, I have some questions there. Uh, you know, even if Jalen gets to a place where he's shooting 34, 35%, if it's low volume, you know, I go back to the Cavs. Like, Okoro has been a pretty solid shooter the last couple of years on low volume. Didn't matter. Teams don't care. Yeah. Um, because if you're well, only taking three shots a game and you're well, John, Col- John Collins is a good example. Yeah. I mean, pre- yeah, pre- it, well, pre the, pre this year when he just, yeah, it's, 
but like he, he shot 38 39 percent for three three full seasons but teams just there's there's a difference there between a hard closeout and a kind of okay we'll put our hand up and yeah uh, and it, you know if you're if you're taking four threes a game you're hitting 38 percent of them that you're beating a team one and a half times a game they're willing to bag off you to muck up the other 46 possessions that happen and it, it's just simple math like it's just how it should happen uh so yeah and but i do think the point about Jalen being good in transition is important because like i mentioned earlier they played a lot quicker with you know when snyder took over uh and there is a lot of kind of dynamism in the you know trey can trey likes to go slow but he can push if he kind of he's kind of a guy where it feels like if he sees guys running with him and sees guys that he feels comfortable with that are good transition players he's willing to dial it up a little more uh Jalen's one of those guys i think aj is kind of an unconventional good transition player in the sense like he knows where to kind of fill the, not unconventional but when you think transition right you usually think like the lob threat can kind of cut to the yeah. rim where whereas aj's really good at kind of finding those pockets in the wings or the corners uh and i think trey's already kind of fairly comfortable at finding him in those spots as well so uh Dejounte, i think is more the guy where he likes to go slower uh, and that's just <laughs> i mean he's he, san antonio i think to my knowledge i have to look it up but he no, never really played right. fast when yeah. when he was there and that was partly you know a preference because of the personnel they had, right? They had DeMar Rose and they had Marcus Aldridge guys who like to play slowly as well, but DeJounte likes to do that as well. All this to say is I think there's a lot to be excited about with Jalen. I totally, I hope they, he, they like, they play really, really quickly and he's out there because of his transition prowess and half court murkiness. But uh, yeah, I, I told, I think him as a long-term answer at the four makes a lot of sense. If him or Kongu can be someone who at least you trust to an extent to both hit the occasional three and at least draw attention from defenses wherever they are, if they're stationed beyond the arc. All right. That is all with part one of myself and Jackson talking about all things Hawks at this point here in early September. And as a reminder, part two should be available in your podcast feed of choice, a bonus episode of sorts. So please subscribe to the podcast anywhere you get your podcast, places like Apple, Spotify, YouTube, etc. Raise and reviews appreciated. Follow us on Twitter slash X at Lots on Hawks and at BT Roll on my personal account, patreon.com slash BT Roll for written content on the Hawks as well. And we'll see you all next time.